Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. I'm Will Westerkow, and today we're going to be talking all about December of 1992. Before we get into it, though, let's hear the song of mystery and see if all you listeners can figure out what it is. This one reached number 29 on the modern rock charts. Isn't that lost We'll tell you what song that was at the end of the episode, but for now, I'd like to introduce my special guest, Joey Callio. Hi, Joey. How you doing, buddy? Great. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So this is December 1992, which is just about 30 years exactly ago. (laughs) Yeah, how time flies. I know, it's crazy. Uh, I guess I'll introduce you a little bit. You are uh, a member of the modern rock band Dada. And we'll be talking about that uh, later today. We'll be listening to one of your songs. You're also in a band called Seven Horse. Is that right? That's correct. Do you want to talk a little bit about 1992? Do you know what you were listening to? Were you following the modern rock charts? Were you listening to alternative radio at the time? You know, I consume a lot of music. And I was definitely consuming a lot back then. So that was the big era of the CD boom. At that time... Just before Dada got signed, I was working at uh, Geffen Records, the record company, Mm -hmm. in the mailroom. And that was like the best gig I ever had. It was like going to college. So I worked there for about four and a half years. And suffice it to say, I got my hands on a lot of promo CDs from all the labels, not just Geffen. So I was just swimming in music at that point. I mean, everything that was happening, I had my hands on. So yeah, I was uh, listening to a lot of stuff. Sounds like a dream for a music fan. It was an amazing time. I mean, I met a lot of famous people, a lot of hero type people in my life. Jimmy Page spent half his day in the mailroom one day. It was amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were just running Heineken's all day and just, you know, taking pictures. It was amazing. But yes, I was definitely into listening. And besides just being a music lover and a musician, I was writing heavily at the time. And so the combination of listening to what everyone else was doing mixed with, I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of books, and that's the well I was tapping into, let's put it that way, for writing. Did you have any thoughts that like, you know, if this band thing doesn't work out, like move up and like, was was it that kind of job where you, you hoped possibly to end up, you know, as a, a VP at Geffen one day, like how to succeed in business sort of scenario? Yes, I was offered ways up, but um, the mailroom, it's like uh, you're protected in the mailroom if as a musician mm-hmm. you can remain an artist you're still street level everything else is corporate right the mailroom is not corporate it just doesn't have that feel it's still street once you move up there you have signaled all the people around you that you are admitting you are not magic now you are one of them you are corporate And the deal is with all these people that work in the music business, which makes total sense, half of them, if not more than half, are aspiring musicians. They wanted to be the famous person, the the rock star, if you will. 
but then they faced that moment where it was like, this is not going to work out for me or I'm not good enough or whatever, for whatever reason, or, Hey, I like the business side better, but it changes the perception of everyone around you that you are admitting that you are not magic. You're not one of those people that they, you know, want to get autographs for. So no, I didn't want to cross that threshold. There were people that did that and it never worked out. I'll say it again. You're no longer magic when you leave the mailroom. I mean, that, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have one other question. I was reading over your bio, and um, one of the facts I saw in there, it said that you played as an extra musician in Back to the Future. That is correct. Were you in Marty's band? No. I got the gig, though, because the bass player in Marty's band, he was in a heavy metal band in L.A. that was kind of hot. They never became famous, but they're L.A. famous. Yeah. He taught Michael J. Fox, who, who, by the way, Michael J. Fox, super nice guy. I spent the day with him and and subsequent party night. The bass player who's in Marty's band is actually a guitar player. He taught Michael J. Fox how to play. Now, the bass player in that guy's band, that guy was dating a friend of mine, right? And um, that guy liked me. He liked my look. I'm pretty sure I used one full can of hairspray a day on my <laughs> hair. I mean, I had giant 80s hair at that moment. It was definitely a work of art. So he goes, hey, they need some musicians for this one scene. I can get you on if you want. And, you know, nobody ever knows how big a movie is going to be. But it was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, it was just kind of one of those things. Yeah. Just a fun thing. And then I find out that it's, you know, What's his face? Hip to be square. Yeah, Huey Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Huey Lewis, thank you. Huey Lewis is in the scene. I mean, it was just a fun scene. I'm actually standing on the side when they pan through all the bands. I'm in one of those bands and I'm holding a strat and I got big hair and a leather jacket. And then you can see me blurry moving gear in the background too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still get little checks for that, by the really? way. Really? Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, very little, but I love them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen that movie probably 50 times. I'll be on the lookout for you next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that scene, it's definitely that scene. Hey, fellas, you're too loud. Yeah, too loud. You'll see me right during that whole scenario. I'm like in a line of bands waiting to audition. I'm yeah. one of those guys. Wow. All right, well, uh, let's start taking a look at the charts. We've got two new number ones this month. Our first song is from a band called Soul Asylum. We played a show with them. Oh, nice. We played at a winery in uh, like the early 2000s. Okay. Really nice gig, and they were definitely nice people. Yeah. So Soul Asylum, this is, uh, we're going to hear their third modern rock charting song out of 12 total, which is pretty impressive. This is also going to be their first of two songs of theirs to reach number one on the modern rock charts. But this is a band formed in Minneapolis in 1981. They were originally called Loud Fast Rules, and they're led by singer Dave Perner, who is the only constant member of the band, although two other band members stuck it out for most of the band's career. Carl Mueller lasted until his death from cancer-related causes in 2005, and lead guitarist Dan Murphy Stuck around until 2011. Soul Asylum released their debut album in 1984. They toured relentlessly. And um, it's starting to pay off by 1992 because they released their sixth album, Grave Dancers Union. It ended up going triple platinum. Four songs were released as singles. And we're going to be hearing the first of those singles, which is called Somebody to Shove. In a world. 
That song is a time capsule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it is perfectly representative of what was happening in the moment. It's got that real alternative rock style, but they're sort of somewhere in between like a Pearl Jam kind of thing, but they're like less aggressive than Pearl Jam, but they're not Nirvana at all. There's grunge light, if that's in that, I don't mean a cut. When I say that, but that's kind of where they're at. Sure. They're hanging on to like the pop sensibilities of rock hooky kind of stuff. And I also think that the guitar line makes me smile when I hear that riff because it's definitely influenced by Sweet Child of Mine. Like the opening riff at the the very beginning of the song? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That is a well-written song for that era. Absolutely. Yeah. Right around this time it's like they increased their pop factor. You know, like, I don't know what happened exactly, but like their earlier albums, they don't sound different, but they haven't figured out how to write pop hooks in quite the same way, or maybe they weren't trying to. But like when we get to 1992, 1993, like so many of these bands, they somehow they figure it out. And it's like a lot of catchy grunge type songs. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I mean, that is what was going on. If you look at all the most famous bands that were really kind of popping and just happening, it wasn't because they put out their experimental record that year. Right. It was because things just got very focused. Things got very commercial. The money factor in music was just through the roof. So the more money there is involved in any art form, if you ask me, the more streamlined and commercial it gets, because that's what the people with the money want. That's a simple math problem, basically. Yeah. One thing I do want to mention about this song, the title kind of cracks me up. (laughs) Somebody to shove. I think it's a clear parody, or at least inspired by somebody to love. Right. It does remind me of the style of of uh, you know what was happening at concerts though there was a lot more shoving at concerts very hip <laughs> that's you true know, post, yeah post punk and like kind of new nirvana you know wave of punk that's what you did at concerts yeah you know? yeah i have been shoved and i have shoved <laughs> my fair share of times indeed yeah <laughs> yeah two other things i want to mention about the song one of them is that when they went into the studio to record this album grave dancers union what I read is that the producer didn't think that Soul Asylum's drummer was up to snuff, and they brought in Sterling Campbell to do drums, and, and Campbell ended up doing drums on about half of the album. He's a, a drummer who's been on all kinds of stuff, David Bowie, Duran Duran, B-52s, and right. things like that. And I've, I've heard these kind of stories before, but like that's going to be hard, not just for the, the oh, band yeah. drummer, but no, for no. all of them. It's a nightmare, but that story is part of music history, period, especially rock and pop music history. Yeah, people get replaced by producers when they have a certain kind of aesthetic they're going for. And the drummer, man, you can't, there's nowhere to hide if your drummer isn't quite, I mean, it's one thing to be good live, 
as a drummer, you can get away with a lot more. I'm speeding up, slowing down. It's not as critical. But once you get in the studio, when you start layering down on top of a beat that isn't quite right, the song is never quite right. Yeah. That kind of stuff happens all the time. It really does. And, you know, maybe the band doesn't break up, but yeah, guys quit over stuff like that, no doubt. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention real fast about this song is that the music video was directed by Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder went on later to become a, a big Hollywood filmmaker, uh, mostly directing like superhero movies. He directed 300 and Man of Steel and Justice League and things like that. You know, all of a sudden MTV videos are vehicles for aspiring movie makers. Yes, there's countless filmmakers who came from the music video world, you know? Right. And that's not going to help your budget. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Nope. Nope. All right. Well, Soul Asylum are still a band. Their most recent album was released in 2020. I believe it was their 12th album. So good for them. Still going at it. That is very cool. Yeah. Soul Asylum was on top with Somebody to Shove for one week. And then they dropped out of the top spot. Because Peter Gabriel was back with another number one hit. We just heard from him a couple episodes ago when he had his number one hit, Digging in the Dirt. And now we're going to hear his number one hit, Steam, which is going to spend five weeks on top of the charts. Wow. Steam comes from Peter Gabriel's sixth solo album called Us. And this guy's had quite a career. I talked about it two episodes back, um, you know, how he started in the band Genesis before Phil Collins took over as the lead singer. I was a big Genesis fan when I was a kid, by the way. Was that Gabriel era or Collins era or both? That's where I started. I was turned on to Genesis by the seniors in high school when I was a fledgling freshman. So, yes, it was all about Gabriel. It was definitely not about uh, post-Gabriel. Yeah. Okay. Peter Gabriel's first solo chart hit on the Hot 100, anyway, in the U.S., was Salisbury Hill in 1977. Fifteen years later, he's charting on the Hot 100 for his final time, at least up to you know present day, with this song, Steam. I read that Steam is about a couple, a man and a woman, and the woman is supposed to be extremely knowledgeable and sophisticated. The man is not so much. But he knows a lot about this woman. He understands her as a person, and she doesn't really understand herself. I don't know if that's super obvious from just listening to the song, but maybe uh, now that you have that in mind, we can give it a listen and see if you can hear that. Here it is, Peter Gabriel's Steam. You know you strip her from your pain. You know you sin her from the sin. You know, one thing I was going to say earlier about it is the B-side to the previous single, Digging in the Dirt, was a song called Quiet Steam. It's a more like lo-fi, less poppy version of the song. And my understanding is that the original version was closer to Quiet Steam than to Steam. And when Peter Gabriel submitted it to the label, they said, there's too many ballads on this album. We need something that's like, sounds more like a hit. And so he reworked quiet steam to be more like sledgehammer that's exactly what it sounds like too that's right that's what it sounds like yeah 
but I think it works. It is maybe a touch to Robert Palmer for me, maybe. I don't know. Like, there's yeah. a little little bit of that vibe, but I still like it. I still think it's a good song. And when he hits that high note on the chorus, it's a hook, you know? I think it, it really works. Right. For the music video, Peter Gabriel or the label, they brought in the same director that directed the famous Sledgehammer video. Well, that Sledgehammer video is groundbreaking. It's incredible. You had to watch that video every time it came on. It was one of those things where you saw something different in it every time. Very well done. Yeah. You know, when you're making a video like that for the first time, it still has the energy. So when they're making steam, it's a known quantity. You know what I mean? It's like the energy is just different. It just doesn't have that same kind of like we're going for it kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. But it does have Peter Gabriel's head superimposed upon a uh, muscular male stripper doing a dance for dollars. So <laughs> Maybe that's something he always wanted. You never know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Peter Gabriel also still going at it as far as I know. This year, actually, he appeared on a track called Unconditional 2 Race and Religion by Canadian indie rock group Arcade Fire. So he's not the most prolific of individuals, but um, yeah, he's still making music. I really appreciate art and artists and people that go the extra length for their artistry. And this is a guy that the entire time as a musician, he is doing that. I mean, he just, he's all in, you know, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, let's keep on moving. We're going to go just slightly down the charts and hear a number five modern rock chart hit by your band, Dada. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> I assume the band's named after the art movement, although possibly it was named after the 1983 Alice Cooper album. Not named after the <laughs> Alice Cooper album, although that might have been a cooler thing to say at the time. <laughs> you know, band names are hard. Let's just start with that. Yeah. It's harder than naming a kid, if you ask me. You know, me and Mike started this band together, right? Mike Gurley. And uh, we were in a band together before Dada. But, um, you know, I think I threw it out once and we blew it off. It was like, nah. And then we came back to it. Mike goes, he goes, what about that Dada? You know, what's that about? And then it was one of us said, well, it'll fit on a sticker easily. So let's, you know, let's think about that. <laughs> that was really it. It wasn't like we'd go to the art gallery together and concentrate on art and stuff like that. I mean, I, I still am heavily into art and art moves me in the same way that music moves me, you know, visual art. So it was cool for me. I thought that was cool, but that's really it. Were there ever any expectations for your band to be like more quotation mark arty because of your band name? Or did everyone just kind of accept that like it's a name? Well, there was only one person that had that be in their bonnet. Let's put it that way, where they thought that we needed to be more arty and like, look, your name is Dada. Unfortunately, it was the head person at IRS Records, Miles Copeland. <laughs> so basically, we turn in the first record. And he hates it because he was expecting something more weird. He thought we were going to be more arty, even though, believe me, we played him all the music live. We went to his office. I mean, there was no surprises. So I don't know really why he expected it to be different, but I guess he did. But what happened was at that point, we'd already spent a little over $100,000, which was a lot for a indie band on a not the biggest label. So at that point, you know, he goes, I'm going to give you $5,000 more. That's it. 
and I want you to go in and re-record the entire record. But what I want you to do is bring in all your friends and tell them to bring in like animals and stuff. And I just want it to be live in literally goes, I want you to throw some shit on the wall. It's like, okay, fine. So we took the $5,000 and no, we don't do that. We go and write six more songs like in about two days and then get a discounted bro deal from like midnight to 6 a.m. in a recording studio and record those six songs, four of which go onto the record. Plus what we did is we remixed, I think about four songs from the initial sessions, which included the song Disneyland, which Miles Copeland hated. He hated, he didn't, he was like, that song's not gonna be on the record. No way, that's, it's too dumb. So yeah, we did run into that buzzsaw and it was a big one. So if he's so upset about it and hates it, I mean, does he not have final say? How are you able to push the record through, I guess, is what I'm well, asking. Well, the answer is, yeah, he's got final say. But what happened was we started playing a little politics. So the other person that started that label with him, one of the other people is this guy named Jay Boberg. Jay Boberg is the guy who signed the Go-Go's. He signed R.E.M. So famously, he put some of the biggest bands on that label but he wasn't involved in the dada thing at all that was a miles and then miles's underling this guy named steve-o those two were handling dada they signed dada they handled the project so we decided to kind of go around their backs and go over to jay boberg who to my eyes i'm thinking this guy signed rem we got to get in that guy's ear yeah he's gonna get this we invite him to come down to the studio where we remixed everything and we run a playback for Jay Boberg. And he's all, what the hell? What's the problem with this? This is great. And so he calls Miles and gets Miles down there. And the two Titans, I will never forget this moment, had it out in the recording studio. That's what happened. Uh And basically Jay said, yeah, that is a good song. That's a hit. And we're going to put it out. That's what it took to get that record off the shelf or, you know, out of the fire, however you want to look at it. Well played, Joey. Well played. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Dada's debut album is called Puzzle. Uh, You mentioned the producer Ken Scott, and I just wanted to throw this out there to listeners. Ken Scott, he produced uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and Hunky Dory for David Bowie. And he produced some big uh, Elton John albums and all kinds of other stuff. I think he was a... a mixer or engineer or some kind of assistant engineer on a bunch of Beatles albums, yeah, even near at Abbey road. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. And, uh, what I read is that he maybe saw your band play live and took a liking to you. Is that, is that how it came about? Sort of. But what happened was we were, uh, and still are friends with people in this band called, uh, Mary's Danish. And they're having a moment in LA me and Mike told Lewis, the guitar player in that band, we're not going to start a band. We're just going to write. And so, uh, I don't know, seven months passes and Lewis comes over to Mike's apartment and Lewis goes, you know, hey, I want to hear some of the stuff you guys are doing. So we play him like six or seven songs and he just looked at us and was like, what the hell are you guys doing? Why are you stuck in this apartment? It's time to get out there and start playing these songs. These songs are great. You guys sound good. And it's like, well, we don't have a band. And he goes, okay, here's the deal. Mary's Dan is just playing the coach house this Friday. You guys are opening. That just blew our mind. It's like, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. And he's like, yeah, you can't. Just do exactly what you just did for me here live. Just these two acoustic guitars. That's fine. 
So that was a great night. And then we realized he's right. Let's just start playing. So we started playing. We played some shows with Mary's Danish. And then we started playing shows on our own at like coffee shops and stuff like that, which was a real very hipster thing to do back in the early 90s. You play a couple of coffee shops in LA. And um, the sax player who uh, would jam with us every once in a while, he was friends with Ken Scott. So he brought Ken Scott down to Highland Grounds, which was a coffee shop where they had like a little corner where it was almost like an open mic kind of thing. Right. And um, yeah. we were just real stripped down and we played our show. Ken Scott came and saw it and he just went, hey, man, I like you guys. This is good. Let's talk. And so he presented us with this deal, which it's like. It's the greatest deal you know you could ever hear. He said, "Look, let's do a demo. I've got a studio. It'll be twenty-four track. I'll produce the songs. We'll pick the three songs, and um, the deal is you don't have to pay me any money, but you got to have me as the producer on the full record." And we're just wow. kind of like, <laughs> "I don't get this. What? Where's the downside?" So obviously, we took that deal, and yeah, that's um, amazing. That's sort of how we got Ken Scott. Wow, yeah. After all the terrible deals I've heard about, that's uh <laughs> right. That's one of the few the few good ones, yeah. yeah exactly. That's great. All right. Well, we're going to be hearing a song called Disneyland. Some listeners may not remember, but there was a famous Disney advertising campaign. I think started in 1987 with a Super Bowl ad where the the Super Bowl team or NFL player would say like, you know, now that you've won the Super Bowl, what are you going to do? And they'd say you know, I'm going to Disneyland or I'm going to Disney World or whatever it was. And they continued those commercials for many, many years after that. So at least where I grew up, this was a very famous expression and kind of a joke that people would say on the playground or whatever. Yeah, that is where that came from. But it was a mixture of the everything was ironic back then. It was on at the same time that a war was being televised. And that was kind of the impetus of that kind of angle, you know. So we were seeing footage of presumably Iraq War, Desert Storm stuff exactly. or whatever, and and then followed immediately by a Disneyland commercial. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So the spelling of the song title is separated as Disney, like with a K, land. Was that forced on you? Was that preemptive so that you didn't get sued? Or was there, like, did Disney actually reach out and force your hand on that one? I got the idea for this song in a dream, I swear to you. I got the melody in my dream and the word Disneyland went by me on a bus, like, you know, just a giant bus in my dream. Uh-huh. And I woke up <laughs> and I just started writing these lyrics. It was like five in the morning. I just started writing, you know, I just blew up the school. Now I'm going to Disneyland, just anything that was, you know, again, ironic and, you know, made no sense kind of thing. And then I woke up later and then wrote a bunch more and called Mike basically. But uh, the idea of the name spelling that was actually just a gag we were having in the studio. Ken Scott, the way he did things is he had a whiteboard. You had all the mm -hmm. songs on the top and then you had all the tracks on the other side. And it's like, did we get the drums? Did we get the bass? Did we get the guitar? And a month into the studio time, you start, you know, get a studio fever or whatever. And you start doing goofy shit. And uh, that yeah, was, yeah. we just start changing the name of all the songs. And that one kind of stuck just because it was like, maybe we should use that in case it is going to be a problem. Yeah. It was kind of a preemptive strike, but it wasn't the original intent. 
side note, they did have a board meeting, we heard later. It was on a boat party that Disney was having. <laughs> they played the song on the yacht and like kind of got everybody's like take. Like, is this a problem? And they all like, no, not a problem. <laughs> do we have to sue <laughs> yes, no exactly. not this time nah, we like it it's fine yeah i love that the song came to you in a dream though that puts you in good company with the beatles yesterday and the rolling stones i can't get no satisfaction believe me that does not happen i mean I, that's my really one and only time that that happened like that at least all right well let's go ahead and listen to it here is disneyland by donna i just ran away from home now i'm going to disneyland I just crashed my car again, now I'm going to Disneyland I just robbed a grocery store, I'm going to Disneyland I just flipped off President George, I'm going to Disneyland I like the song. I think it's fun. It's funny. It's got, you know, really memorable melody to it. To me, like one of the first things I think of is like listening to the full album. You know, this one stands out. It's a little bit different from a lot of the other stuff. And it's interesting to me that this is probably the song your band's best known for or best remembered for when it's maybe not super typical. And I think a lot of people might have misjudged the band, maybe thought that your band was jokier than they actually were. Right. Did you find that that was the case where people kind of pigeonholing your band or people were showing up expecting one thing and they got something else? Or I don't know if they were showing up for one thing and got something else, but definitely it's a curse and a, a bonus. Uh, you know, the song got us where we needed to go, where we wanted to go. You know, we were yeah. very lucky. I know so many musicians who are super talented. I mean, they, you know, can smoke me on guitar and are even good songwriters, but they just, nothing ever clicked with them. They just got, would either get signed and dropped or never got signed. So man, to have even just that kind of success, you know, was incredible. (laughs) We were so lucky. So for me, I love this song. It's definitely a love it or hate it kind of song. It is atypical, but I'm glad we had it. And um, we had a few different songs that I thought maybe could be a single, but then we started doing some shows, like I was saying with like Mary's Danish and we would tour up the coast a little bit on the West coast. And every night, I mean, every night kids would come and ask me the same thing. What is that Disneyland song about? That was the one they wanted to talk about. So it was kind of like, I'm telling you that four and a half years at Geffen taught me a lot. Like that is the song you want. The song that makes people pick up the phone and call the radio station and say, Hey, will you play that Disneyland song? What is that about? Yeah, that's fun. And I got to say, I'm happy to hear that you still like the song and enjoy the song because you know, whenever I hear about bands who have like one hit that kind of stands out and they, you know, they talk shit about it later and they're sick of playing it. And I never like to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, you know, to be honest, I think really most artists are like me. They appreciate the song that changed their life because they lived the life before it was changed. Really, it's this sort of like, how do I get there? How do, and it just seems so impossible, you know? Yeah. So that song definitely changed all our lives. And um, I'm definitely happy for it. Yeah. 
Dada went on to have a couple more modern rock hits, actually. They didn't chart quite as high as Disneyland, but Dim charted from the same album, from Puzzle, and then the follow-up album had a song that charted. But at some point, a few albums in, you had some record label trouble, right? IRS went bankrupt. Well, yeah, they went out of business while we were on tour. I mean, when your bus has turn around halfway through a tour because you're your record company is that right yeah man we're like in tennessee and it's like hey guess what tours off record companies off it's all over for now you know interesting i i had actually didn't know that the record company was involved with the tour stuff that much do they fund all the travel is that how that works yes (laughs) yes well they (laughs) they fund it and you pay them back that goes yeah same conversation about Bands don't make any money because these record companies, you know, they were spending so much money to compete, you know, and MTV and the radio was just happening back then still. I mean, it just was. Alternative radio was so big. K-Rocks of the world, you know, BCN, all that kind of stuff. They ruled the roost. So you got to You had to throw a lot of money at that. And yes, you had to tour like banshees and, um, it's basically like they're a bank, you know, and they loan you money. And then when you get paid on the side of your check, it says, here's your $5,000. And here's how you're going to pay your $5,000 back. You know, I mean, wow. it's just, it's incredible. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, no, man, they paid. And then we, it was on our ledger. And then when they fold, do you still owe them money or do you, you're like, yippee, we're, we don't have to pay them back anymore. No, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. But yeah, no, that was pretty much it for our debt with IRS. Then we just went in debt with MCA right after that. That's a whole nother story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the band, uh, you put out a, an album on MCA in 1998, and I guess disappeared for a little while and came back in 2004 uh, with another album. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the final Dada studio album. Is that right? Well, okay, so... When we did that record on uh, MCA, we recorded like, I don't know, 30 songs. And uh, we licensed back all those recordings and put that as an album out called How to Be Found. And then we did a live record. We put that album out, recorded at the Coach House, which is the first place we ever played. And then um, we put out an EP a friend of Pat Robertson, which um, I love that song, by the way. I think that's one of the best songs we ever did. That was pretty much the last studio recordings. There is a a record that's half done somewhere out there. We were making a record like in 2010, I think about, and it just stalled out. The band members just couldn't all come together on like the timeline and blah, 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 the typical kind of stuff. Sure. So, I mean, I guess the status of Dada then is that like, extended hiatus i doubt that we'll ever go back in the studio and kind of write from the ground up i mean we we did a single about five years ago i think it was Mm -hmm. it's not a high watermark for dada but um it's okay it's not bad but i think we're probably done in the studio the live thing though i mean we really were favorited as a live band which i appreciate i think that's cool when people think that that's like as good as the records as the live you know, they want to see us play live. That's kind of old school in a way. You know, I like that. Yeah. So uh, to me, that's probably the only thing that we would get together to do would be maybe to do a show or some shows or a tour or whatever. I don't see that happening in the immediate future. So it's kind of like, we'll see. Right now, the seven horse band that me and Phil have is really kind of going off. 
So that band's definitely happening. I would say Dada, it's not broken up. It's definitely just on the back burner. Well, great. We're going to hear from one more band. We're going to go down to number 16 on the Modern Rock Charts. We're hearing from a band called Supreme Love Gods, not to be mistaken with the REM side project, the Hindu Love Gods. It's a very different love god. Right. This band was formed in Fresno, California, and they were active between 1990 and 1993. Listening to them, you might not necessarily recognize that they are an American band because, well, I mean, you'll hear it, but their uh, website describes them as an American Britpop band, which is one of the sillier... From Fresno. Uh, <laughs> from Fresno, yeah, from Fresno. It's one of the sillier descriptions I've heard. Yeah, they sound to me kind of like, uh, you know, a Manchester sort of band, but from Fresno. Let's go ahead and hear the song. It's called Sold Out by the Supreme Love Gods. I'm glad they actually went there because I definitely sense like whether they know it or not, this is a very Beatley influenced project. And then it's like, oh, well, they're copying an actual Beatles riff. They're singing parts of uh, I Am The Walrus. So it's like, oh, okay, cool. They get it. <laughs> At least they're not like they didn't know that that's what they're yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean, this song like, is serviceable enough for me. Like, I'm not astounded by it, but I think it's fine. I, I don't know if I'll remember it well enough to be singing it to myself later, but I like it enough while it's on. And uh, it just kind of cracks me up how Britishy sounding it is. It is, but it's very like, man, that's a time capsule, that song right there. Again, it's like it really reminds me of what was happening in the approach of songwriting and recording. It was mm -hmm. very, I mean, like, once again, man, Nirvana, all the kind of K-Rocky kind of bands, just the kind of cool factor was just at a high premium back then, right? And that song definitely has that. It's definitely influenced by all that, what was going on. You know, it was almost like an an amalgamation of everything, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know much more about them. The band, I think they split in 1993, or at least they stopped making music in 1993. You know, details are, are pretty scant. I did read that the band, during the pandemic, decided to remix some of their songs uh, as a charity fundraiser. Oh, that's cool. But other than that, yeah, I think, I think it was just kind of a one and done. I think they had an EP, and I think they had a, a single album from 1992. And uh, that's all there is of the Supreme Love Gods. They're from Fresno. You know, you got to give them a lot. I mean, there, I don't know if you've ever been to Fresno. I sure have. Not, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot going on in Fresno, I mean, to make you a rock star. That's for damn sure. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason I wanted to, to play the song is just because, like, you know what? You guys were from Fresno and you managed something. <laughs> so, totally. I mean, so let's that celebrate is it. A yeah. Thing. I agree, man. That is a thing. Good for them. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our band's. I guess we can circle back around to the Song of Mystery. Those of you who uh, heard that at the beginning of the episode, that was a band called The Jayhawks. The song was called Waiting for the Sun. And uh, it was off of what's probably their best album, Hollywood Town Hall. You know, if you're into like Alterna Country, Uncle Tupelo and Wilco and things like that, give it a shot. Check it out. A lot of Dada fans like The Jayhawks. 
definitely there's a Venn diagram there somewhere. Nice. All right. Well, Joey, before we get going, I want to make sure I point listeners in your direction and check out, you know, other things you're up to. So if anyone wants to hear Seven Horse, should they go to like a band camp or a Facebook page or anything like that? Well, we definitely have Seven Horse Music on uh, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And then we have just a regular website, Seven Horse Music. Check it out. And then most of the Dada albums are on Spotify and presumably other listening services. Yeah, it's available everywhere everybody else's music is available. Let's put it that way. All right. Well, great. Uh, all you listeners out there, you know, if you haven't reviewed the show, I'd appreciate it if you went online and gave us a nice review. That'd be cool. If anyone wants to contact me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thanks again, Joey, for joining me. It was uh, really cool. I learned a lot. Had a good time. Right on. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Catch you all next time. All right, pal. Bye.